0: Turn your Bibles to Colossians, and hopefully you had a chance to pick up an outline on your way in, and uh, this is week two in our five-week series entitled Just Jesus, and we, we looked at the introduction uh, last week, the first 14 verses where we looked at who the personalities of the book are, the place, the person, yeah, anybody not have an outline tonight, I'm going to actually give you blanks to fill in, so there's, keep your hand up, Pastor John's going to walk around and hand you one. And uh, hopefully I'll I'll be able to fill that in for you tonight. But we looked at the personalities of the letter, the place of the letter, the people that received the letter, the prayer that Paul prayed uh, for the recipients of the letter. And tonight we're going to jump into probably the greatest doctrinal passage contained in the book of Colossians. It's just a couple verses, but man, it is packed with powerful truth about who Jesus is. And the reason Paul is starting with doctrine is he's getting ready to diffuse um, some teaching that has crept into the church at Colossae. It's, it's corrupt teaching that, that takes Jesus and then adds different things to faith in Christ to make you right with God. And as you know, uh, that is heresy. And so this, this is what prompted the writing of the letter was false teaching that had crept into the church at Colossae. And so Paul wants to, uh, like a good teacher, show you the truth before he points out the error. Um, you know, they, they talk about these guys in the FBI that that look at counterfeit money and they catch counterfeiters. Well, you know, if you ever see a counterfeit bill, um, man, it's, it's hard to tell the difference. And so people ask... These these guys, that it's their job to tell the difference. They say, how do you do that? And he says, well, we don't study the counterfeits. We study the original. And when you know the original, you can quickly tell the counterfeits. And so Paul starts with doctrine. He wants to give them rock-solid doctrine about who Jesus is and what he has done for us before he counters the delusional doctrine that's crept in. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to read through this text, and then we're going to break down... Uh, A couple verses and then hopefully we'll leave more enlightened about who Jesus is. Let's start reading in verse 15. Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Of course, he's speaking about Jesus. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Those are the verses we're going to take a look at tonight. And uh, will you join me in prayer before we begin? Uh, Father, it's so exciting to take a look uh, at a book that was written, inspired by your Holy Spirit, to a church in a town filled with people just like us. People that believed uh, in Jesus alone for their salvation, but the culture started to contaminate their belief and their faith, creeping into the church. And Lord, that, that happens to us in so many different ways today. We need this teaching, Lord. We need to be reminded who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, I pray that you'd open our eyes. Help us to see you for who you are and help us to just receive into our hearts the reality that someone like yourself has saved us and we're complete in you. So, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, tonight if I want you to, to leave with one truth, it is this. And I filled in the blank just in case you fall asleep after the first 10 minutes. And it is this, Jesus is supreme. He is supreme. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Hopefully, if you could kidding now, maybe you will later. But Jesus is supreme. And to speak of supremacy is to speak of that which is above or over others. It reaches the level of super. How many use the word super? Probably too much. Okay. I think that's super. Well, in our language, it refers to that which or who is greatest in power, authority, and rank it's also used to describe that which is of greatest importance significance character or achievement it's the ultimate so if you go into a pizza place and you order the supreme you should have high expectations okay this is this is supposed to be the best you have it's the supreme okay well jesus is supreme in everything and before we jump into the outline i wanted to look at verse 15 because there's some language there that could possibly be a little confusing. Paul says he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Well, we know from John 4 24 that God is a spirit, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit. That means there's no flesh, blood, bones, corpuscles. He's invisible, okay? He is an invisible, all knowing, all powerful, all present being. That's difficult for us to imagine, isn't it? It's difficult for us to envision someone who's so intangible, uh, one who is ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. He is the pre existing one. He has always been. He always will be. God never gets tired. He never gets hungry. He never gets sick. He never grows old. He is a spirit, He is transcendent. That's hard to wrap our mind around. In fact, we get in trouble when we try to create something that makes sense. In Romans, Paul talks about people who who make an image of God, right? And they worship an image made of of wood or stone. And, And that's where we get in trouble because we start to craft things that would represent God out of things that we know when God is far beyond that. He's immaterial. He's a spirit. And we must worship Him in spirit. And in truth, well, Paul here wants to ground the Colossian believers and remind them who they worship and who Jesus is. And so he says to them Jesus is the image of the invisible God. This invisible God that you have a hard time wrapping your mind around, just think of Jesus. He's the visible of the invisible, He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. J.B. Phillips says that Jesus is God in focus. When you're looking at the blurry image of who God is in spirit, you turn that lens and all of a sudden shoo, comes into sharp focus Jesus Christ. He's the image of the invisible God. And when it says that He's the firstborn of all creation, this does not mean that Jesus was born first or created first. No. The context uh, makes it very clear in verse 16 that by him all things were created. And so if he's the firstborn and he created all things, he would have to create himself first. That's absurd. What does the firstborn of all creation uh, mean? It simply means that he is the firstborn over all creation. He is superior to and distinct from all created beings and things. So in the Old Testament times, the title firstborn was primarily a title indicating rank and privilege, didn't always go to the physical firstborn child. And you think Jacob and Esau. Sometimes that title was given to someone who was born out of due time, a little bit later. Now you think of Joseph, you know, the youngest, or the second youngest of all the brothers, and he was given the firstborn inheritance. And so, and so the firstborn is a title indicating rank and privilege, and three things accompanied the title. Property rights... The firstborn, the one who's designated firstborn, received double the inheritance. Uh, also priestly rights. That person was responsible for leading their family in worship. And also they were the progenitor. Uh, the one who had progenitor rights. And that means that they were uh, in the birth line of Messiah. And so Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. So the Holy Spirit through Paul is giving our limited human minds the concept that Christ is the righteous heir of all things seen and unseen. He holds the claim to all that is. He's also the high priest of everyone. He is supreme in every way. He's not a part of some angelic family. He made the angels. He wasn't created by God. He is creator God. So this is a high view of Jesus and And it's the highest. Jesus is supreme. And if we leave with nothing else tonight, leave with with that statement in mind. Jesus is supreme. But there's a few areas in which Jesus is supreme that Paul elaborates. And the first we see in verses 16 through 17. Jesus is supreme in creation. He's supreme in creation. Jesus imagined it. He instigated it. He illuminated it. He integrated it. Then he infiltrated it so he could liberate it. Jesus created everything. It was his idea. Everything that's visible, everything that's invisible. So if you're filling in blanks, it's supreme in creation. Letter A, let's let's talk about the visible things. Everything that you read about in Genesis 1 and 2, created by God, it covers it all. In the beginning, God created. It just makes the statement He's the creator. From fishes and fields to hippos and hills, every cloud in the sky, every color in your eye, He created it all. Take out a telescope. Better yet, send the biggest telescope you can find to space and look as far as you can look. And everything you see, He made. Everybody know about the Hubble telescope, and you can see beautiful pictures taken by the Hubble that's out in space. I just recently found out that the Hubble telescope is no longer the largest telescope in space. In 2009, they sent Herschel to space, and Herschel is one and a half times larger than Hubble. I wonder what kind of pictures we're going to see from Herschel. We probably won't see any ETs out there, but every galaxy, every every nebula, black hole you see, they're creations of Jesus. Isn't that awesome? He's supreme. He's supreme in creation. Everything visible that your eye beholds was created by Jesus Christ. From great planets and stars to paramecium and cilia, the really smallest things. You, You take out the biggest telescope, everything you see God made. Take out the biggest microscope and go into the invisible world of bacteria and cells and everything you see God made. Everything that exists that we didn't even know existed. God created it. There's nothing that will be seen that we haven't seen that God didn't make. They all have their origin from our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is supreme in creation for everything that's visible. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And he speaks to us. Jesus created all of those things, and yet he speaks to us. It's awesome to think about. Not only is he supreme in creating the visible things, he's supreme in creating the invisible things. In Ephesians 6 and 12, Paul tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, the things that we see, but against principalities and powers and rulers. He talks about a spiritual world that exists outside of what we conceive, outside of what we see. In Hebrews thirteen two, the author warns us, he says, Be careful, you may be entertaining angels unaware. There's a spirit world that we we can't even comprehend, but it's real. It's as real as Jimmy's sitting right there. The spirit world exists. It's unseen, and it was created by Jesus. In Numbers 22, do you remember the story of Balaam and the donkey? And God wanted to get Balaam's attention, and so God opened the eyes of the donkey to see an angel standing in the path with a sword. And the donkey was smart enough not to go there, right? And he started, you know, being stubborn, and Balaam was getting mad and everything. And then the donkey spoke to Balaam. And man, you know, there's, there's got to be an illustration uh, in the fact that a donkey could see, but the prophet could not. But anyway, but there's a spirit world that's real. And I, I think, man, if God would open our eyes just for a moment, it would, it would probably scare us to death, wouldn't it? Psalm 91, 11, and 12 tells us that God gives His angels charge over us. They're unseen, but they're real. They're real. They're here. And they were created by Jesus. If anything ever was, is, or will be, it's because of Jesus. He is the great cause. He is supreme over all creation. The the New Living Translation translates verse 17 this way. He existed before anything else and He holds all creation together. I love that. He holds all creation together. From the gravitational pull of the sun to the smallest molecular structures in existence, all of it is being held together by Jesus. In this moment, one day the Bible says in 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. How will that happen? Maybe, just maybe, everything that is now, this moment, being held together by Jesus, well, in that moment, he'll just let go. Think about it. He is the creator of all things. And not only has he made it, he sustains it. He holds it together. And if Jesus would just let go, it would incinerate. Awesome. Jesus is supreme in creation. The things visible, the things invisible. And then in verse 18, we see how Jesus is supreme. Number two In the church. Jesus is supreme in the church. We were reminded in our Connect groups this past Sunday that Jesus said in Matthew 16 18, I will build my church. The church doesn't belong to the pastor, it doesn't belong to the staff, it doesn't belong to the deacons or any group of or individual members. The church belongs to Jesus, Him alone. He is supreme in the church. And there's three ways that Jesus is described as a part of the church. The first is, He is the head of the body. He's the head of the body. I love Ephesians 4.15, and I'm using a lot of references from Ephesians because it's a sister letter to Colossians. There's a lot of similarities, and so I love referencing it in hopes that you go over and read Ephesians 2. Ephesians 4.15 Paul says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined in it together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Every part does its share. I love that causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Jesus is the head of the body. The head of the body. There's a story told about how the members of the body got together and they were arguing over who was in charge. And the hand said, well, you guys couldn't get anything done without me. And the feet spoke up and said, well, without us, you would be going nowhere. And the legs said, well, wait a second. Last I checked, we support the whole thing over here. And the neck was listening this whole entire time and was getting so upset and started to twist and knot and the whole body just froze up. And they said, okay, 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 neck. You can be in charge. And what do we learn from that? The only thing you have to do to be in charge is be a big pain in the neck. Right? But Jesus, he's the head. He's the head. You might be a pain in the neck, but you're not the head. No, Jesus is the head of the church. He is supreme in the church. He calls the shots. He runs the show. Jesus is the head. A body without a head is grotesque. Jesus is the head. So do you have a concern for the church? Take it to the head. The church belongs to him. It's his body. Don't complain. Pray. Second, Jesus is cornerstone of the building. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about this. Verses 19 through 22, Paul says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit." So the cornerstone or foundation stone or setting stone is the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation. Important because all the other stones will be set in reference to this stone. It determines the position of the entire structure. Without the cornerstone, the building is improperly built. Without the cornerstone, the building will crumble. Jesus is the cornerstone of the building, which is his church. He is the head of the body, which is his church. I don't care how nice our facilities are. If Jesus is not in his rightful place, the church will crumble. Mark it down. He's our foundation. He's our reference. He is supreme in the church. The third way that Jesus is described in relation to his church is he is the groom of the bride, also in Ephesians Paul talks about the husband-wife relationship and compares that to the relationship of Jesus and the church. Husbands, love your wives, just as Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. In Revelation 9:7, uh, he says, John says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Jesus is the groom. And one day he'll be reunited with his bride. Jesus is the groom of the bride. He is supreme in the church. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. You know, if you ever hear somebody say, man, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. You ever heard that? That would be like somebody saying to me, I love you, Dave, but I hate your wife. Well, you're no friend of mine. To say that you love me and hate the thing, the person that I love the most on earth, you're no friend of mine. You see how how incongruent that is to say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. I love the head, but I hate the body. Try loving a head that's been severed from the body. Grotesque. Try living in a house where the cornerstone's been removed. Condemned. That doesn't go together. Something is desperately wrong with somebody who says a statement like that because Jesus is the head of the church. He's the cornerstone of the building. He is the groom of the bride. He is supreme in creation. He's supreme in the church. And He is also, and we'll spend most of our time here, supreme in and our salvation. Look at verses 19 through 23. And I'm going to read it again for us before we jump into this. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and you, that's you and Colossae. You here in Fort Worth tonight, you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in your faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. Jesus is supreme. And our salvation. You remember me uh, suggesting the doctrinal delusion that had entered the church in Colossae? They were taking Jesus, faith in Jesus, and adding to it. You see, it wasn't just Jesus that makes us saved. It's Jesus plus asceticism, Jesus plus legalism, Jesus plus syncretism, taking all these other religions and mixing them in and stirring the pot. It's not just Jesus. Paul is saying, no, it is just Jesus because He is supreme. He's supreme in creation. He is supreme in the church. He is supreme in our salvation. And the reason we know that is, is letter A, He started it. He started it. He made peace. He reconciled. I love in John 6, Jesus said this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up in the last day. I love that. I also love what they call the high priestly prayer. John 17, where Jesus is praying to his Father before the garden. He said, Father, or in the garden, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may also glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. God started it. And then he says, those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. From the beginning, God initiates with man, whose idea was creation. We weren't even around to have an idea. God said, let us make man in our image. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity, right there in the beginning. Of the Bible. Let us make man in our image. He started it, and so He makes man. And He walks with us and gives us everything we need and fellowships with us and only gives us one reasonable rule. And we break the reasonable rule. And sin enters the world and death through sin, and He's walking around in the garden looking for us. Though He had sinned, He still comes looking. He knew where Adam was, but He initiates and He comes and He walks. And he calls out Adam's name. And then when Adam and Eve come come out and they're insufficiently clothed, what does he do? He initiates by shedding a poor, innocent animal's blood to cover them in their sin. He did that. God initiated. And then he casts them out. And then wickedness grows. And what does he do? He says, hey, Noah. He initiates with Noah. Build an ark. I'm going to save you and your family. And so he does, and God saves them. And then more people multiply and fill the earth, and there's a pagan idol-worshiping man named Abram in Ur. And he's just like everybody else. He's going about his business, worshiping idols, praying to wood and stone, and God says, Abram. Calls his name. He initiates. God is always dialing, waiting for us to pick up the receiver. It's God who dials. God calls, God speaks, God says his name. Abram responds, he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to reveal myself through you and your family to the world. And he does. And then they turn and they disobey, and God allows them to be in slavery. And a young man named Moses has an incredible story and gets kicked out of Egypt and is running around on the backside of a desert. And God sets a bush on fire, gets his attention, and then he says, Moses, he calls him. God initiates and then he sends prophets and they kill the prophets and he sends more prophets and then he's silent and then he appears to an old couple, an old man while he's serving in the temple and he says, your wife, even though she's old, she's going to have a son and he's going to prepare the way of the Messiah. God initiates. God sends John the Baptist to preach. God initiates. Jesus comes to us comes in to our world and lives the life we can't live. He initiates. And from the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And they bury him, and three days later, he raises from the dead, and he initiates. Again, he says, Mary... And she recognizes him, and he says, go tell the others. And then he says, now I'm going to go to heaven, but I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise. You go wait. I will send him. And he sends the Holy Spirit, and the church is born, and the gospel spreads. And to this day, he is initiating with people who are lost around the world with his Holy Spirit, convicting them of sin and drawing them into himself, dialing the number. Will you pick up and answer his call? Salvation. He started it. Everybody say, He started it. He started. he started it. It was God's idea. He's supreme. Not only did He start our salvation, let it be He secured our salvation. He secured it. All of this stuff that has been done, He, he initiated, it's done. It's as if it's been finished. Ephesians Chapter 1, verses 13 through 14 is an incredible passage. Paul says to the church at Ephesus, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. So you heard it, he initiated and then you you trusted, you picked up, you answered the call. The gospel of your salvation in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. He secured you by sealing you with the Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. He started it, He secured it. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We are in Christ, Christ's Spirit is in us. We are secure. We're secure. I lived for a long time as a Christian not knowing that. You know what I call it? Eternal insecurity. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. I believed that salvation was like water skiing. You just grab this little stick that's connected to a speedboat and hang on for dear life. And if you let go, you better hope he comes around again. You can grab that. And maybe if you keep skiing till the end, you'll be saved. That's not scriptural salvation. We are saved. We are secured by his Holy Spirit. This is a passage of scripture that really just blew me away when I really, when I really thought about it and what salvation was. John 10, 28 through 30. Jesus said, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. I give them eternal life. How long is eternal? It's eternal. And they shall never perish. What does that mean? Never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. Supreme. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. I love that passage of scripture because it talks about my security. Not only did He start it, not only does He secure it, but let us see He sustains it. He sustains our salvation because He's supreme. Reserved in heaven for us. Who's made that reservation? Jesus. Jesus. He keeps reservations. Have you ever rented a car and they're supposed to hold a car for you? And you make a reservation and then you show up and the car's not there? You reserved it, but they didn't hold the reservation, right? Right? I don't know what they reserve, but it's not there when you get there. Jesus, when he makes a reservation, he holds it. He secures it. He sustains it. And then finally, he will see it through to the end. Letter D, he will see it through to the end. Philippians 1.6. Love this verse of Scripture. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He started it, he secures it, he will see it through to its predetermined end. Look at verses 21 through 22 here in Colossians. Just want to read this for you one more time because Paul says some amazing things to these saints and to us here tonight. He says, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled, reconciled. Peace has been made between you and God. The hatchet has been buried. The broken relationship has been restored. He has reconciled. Past tense. It's done. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy. That's consecrated. Set apart for God. And blameless. That means without blame. Innocent of wrongdoing. You're a saint. Do you remember last week? You're a saint. I'm a saint. Not because of us, but because of him. We're blameless. We're above reproach in His sight. That means blameless. No criticism can be made. No accusation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 Those are some amazing things that He's reminding the saints about. Because of Jesus and all that He's done and His supremacy and creation and the church and your salvation, you are in Him now. You are saved. You are secure. And He will see it through it's predetermined in. Superhero movies um, have been huge the past couple of years. I don't know if you've noticed this. Uh, I grew up with Christopher Reeves as Superman. The first Superman movie was great. Number two was okay. Number three was awesome. Number four, I don't even remember. Uh, But Christopher Reeves, not, not too bad as Superman. But lately, We have uh, the Avengers and the Incredible Hulk and Spider-Man, Guardians of the Galaxy, X-Men, Thor, Spider-Man, and, of course, Wonder Woman. Um, And and don't forget the Justice League, but every superhero movie has pretty much the same premise, okay? Uh, There's an evil enemy that threatens the existence of Earth. And we need a hero, okay, to come and rescue the world, Well, the last superhero movie I saw was the Justice League, and it was kind of a culmination of a couple of movies coming together. Well, there's this guy named, um, I don't even know, uh, something Wolf, I don't even remember his name. Anyway, Steppenwolf, from another world, and he's coming to destroy the earth. He seeks out civilizations, destroys them, remakes them into what he wants, and of course, Batman is not enough to stop him. It takes more than a psychotic billionaire uh, to stop him. The Flash is not fast enough. Aquaman, even though he has total control of the oceans, he's just not cutting it. Uh, Cyborg, not enough. Even Wonder Woman does not have what it takes, if you can believe that, ladies. No. What they need to beat this otherworldly foe is anotherworldly hero. Someone from above. Someone who looks like an ordinary Joe but has unmatched supernatural power. They need... They need Superman. Superman. Is there a greater hero than Superman? He's faster than any fast superhero. He's more strong than any... He flies. He has laser vision that can melt steel. He has a wind that he could blow and freeze things. He, he, he is unstoppable. And so Superman comes, and this guy's not even a contest for Superman. Jesus is unmatched. He's unmatched. He is supreme. He is he's above anything we can conceive, anything we can map, wrap our mind around anything we see and know and can comprehend. He created it. He designed it. He developed it. He sustains it. He is above all. Everything that was made was made by Him, for Him, and will one day bow to Him. He is the supreme in creation, in our church, in our salvation. He paid the price for our sin. He paved the way for us to get back to God, and he invites us to rest in that. He's all we need. And there's no kryptonite for the king of kings. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, thank you so much for your word. And Jesus, we are overwhelmed with who you are, Not only who you are, but what you chose to do. How you chose to redeem us. A rebellious, sin-filled, broken people. You chose to come and and show us how to live. Lay your life down for us. Die a death that you did not deserve. Pay the price for our sins so that you can make a way for us. To be with you forever. That is mind-boggling. Lord, we don't deserve it, and we stand in awe tonight of who you are and how you love us. Lord, when, when other teaching tries to creep in and, and other, other heresies that say Jesus isn't enough, help us to always go back to your word and see passages like this passage tonight in Colossians. And help us to be reminded that you are everything we need That our salvation depends only upon you. Have your way in our hearts tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.